Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 21 for September of 2017. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave. And in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be continuing our discussion of sci-fi royalty that we began last month. This time, however, it's all about the ladies. And our show topics include a spoiler-free preview of the Orville, which begins its run on September 10th on Fox, and The Last Ship, which is in the midst of its fourth season on TNT. Yeah, and these are some unique topics we're going to be discussing today, and I can't wait to get into those. We also have an interview with Nick Antosca, the showrunner of Channel Zero, to talk about season two of that show. Very excited to share that with you guys. And just in case you are planning on watching the Orville, planning on watching Channel Zero, have no worries about either of those. Since they haven't started yet, they will be spoiler-free. And The Last Ship, I'm going to do something unique here. Because that show is in its fourth season, I am going to start off with a discussion of the show in general. So you can decide if that's something that you want to go back and watch like I did. I binge-watched it from the very beginning these past few weeks. Man, did you ever? (laughs) Yeah, I totally tackled it. So I'm going to talk about it a little bit if you want to, and then I'll warn you when I'm about to get into spoilers and tell you to turn away. But if you're not interested in one or more of those topics and you want to skip around a little bit, here are the time codes for today's topics. Sci-Fi Royalty. 209. The Orville. 1805. The Last Ship. 3001. Channel Zero. 4940. Okay, Dave, I'm really excited to be doing part two of Sci-Fi Royalty. And of course, this segment is spoiler-free as well. But did you find that the actresses, the female members of the Sci-Fi Royalty discussion that we're having, were more difficult to come up with? I I think so, especially when we need to come up with six. I mean, there are a few that I think are really pretty obvious. But I think the ones we've chosen, however, really do stand on their own merits. I'll just say that. Yeah, I was surprised at how difficult it was because we've had this discussion many times. You and Wayne and I call it the first lady of sci-fi discussion, and we've had it many times over the years. But uh, the guys seem to be a lot easier to pick those iconic characters. And I think we have more examples in the second category, which is people who have a breadth of sci-fi cred in their career. So just to remind everyone, how do we define sci-fi royalty? Well, It's an actor who has iconic status. The character that they played is just so key to the genre that they've just become almost an archetype to themselves. Or an actor who's made so many multiple significant contributions to the science fiction television genre that they 
have joined the ranks of sci-fi royalty. Okay. And we did get a little bit of listener feedback from Kevin Batchelder. I don't remember whether he Facebook grouped us or sent us an email. It doesn't yeah. really matter. <laughs> it was an email, actually. So I should remind everyone, if you want to get in contact with us, I don't mention it very much. I just say get in touch with us on social media. But you can email us at sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com, which is what Kevin did. And he wanted to share his candidate for sci-fi royalty in the mail category. He says, hey, guys, a suggested addition to your male sci-fi royalty list based on his breadth of roles is Mark Shepard. Supernatural, Warehouse 13, Doctor Who, Chuck, Dollhouse, Battlestar Galactica, The Middleman, Bionic Woman, Medium, and Firefly. And yeah, I looked him up. He's not a name I recognize, but a, certainly a face that I immediately recognized. And it's one of those characters that just sneaks in and just has a huge resume. Yeah, I mean, he's got a principal role as Crowley on Supernatural, but, you know, we remember him as, I think he was a lawyer in Battlestar Galactica, if I remember correctly. And, and then, of course, Badger in Firefly. And, you know, as you said, he, he turns up everywhere. We immediately recognize him. And, and you know, certainly that's a, a good addition to this discussion. And just to throw in a plug for Kevin, a, a lot of you guys know him from his tuning into sci-fi TV podcast, but more recently and maybe even a little more prominently because it's really getting a lot of, of action. And that is his Tales of the Black Badge podcast, which follows Winona Earp, which is one of the shows to actually survive the sci-fi bloodbath <laughs> over the exactly. last week or so. Yeah. Winona Earp renewed for season three. Khalil Joy is renewed for a season four and five. And that will be its final season. But Dark Matter and Blood Drive did not make the cut. Those were harsh, harsh bits of news for us to take in. Yeah, they really were. And, and you can almost understand Blood Drive because their overall viewers were rather low. But they did okay in the 18 to 49 group. But it was such a fringe show and series because of the content. And it's certainly not for everybody, but I, I guess I thought it had enough of a following and it was so different. Yeah. What are they going to fill that niche with? You know, it's not like they can fill that up. And same thing with Dark Matter. It may be a space drama, but it's not like any other space drama that's on the channel with its puzzle box mysteries and things like that. So, and that had good ratings, Dark Matter did. So yeah, some harsh news, but we couldn't help but put in a little mention for that. But let's get into this uh, sci-fi royalty here, Dave, because we got a really cool list and it actually ties in a little bit with some of our discussion. And we each picked at least one actor from the same show. <laughs> so you want to start? All right, I'll go ahead and start. And I'm going to go with Gillian Anderson, who played Agent Dana Scully, who I th think is certainly an iconic character. No doubt. We know her from the X-Files and that idea of the eternal skeptic who's brought on board to keep tabs on Fox Mulder. And they really place her in that role so that she debunks everything he's doing, but then she becomes a believer as well because of everything she sees. And, you know, the, the show lasted nine seasons and she had to carry it a little bit once David Duchovny left the show in seasons eight and nine. But that character alone would get her on the list, but she's also in American gods uh, she was in Hannibal, so she's certainly doing enough genre work in addition to her role on the X-Files, I think, for inclusion on this list. I think the competition is more fierce on the male side, and 
strong leading women have just come into vogue in the past decade or so. So it's good to see Gillian Anderson from a couple decades ago on that list. Now, the first one I have is one that people might argue with me on this one, and that's Lena Hetty, who I consider to be an icon rather than a breadth candidate for this royalty role because she took on this iconic role as Sarah Connor in the Sarah Connor Chronicles, the Terminator spinoff series that was already considered to be unmatchable when Linda Hamilton portrayed Sarah Connor in the movies. And she one-upped it. I mean, basically, I think she equaled, if not exceeded, Linda Hamilton's performance as this strong female leader of the robot resistance. Which makes it all the more devastating, because I agree with you, that the show only had two seasons, and the first season, I believe, was only like six episodes. Exactly. So, yeah, that was a painful cancellation, speaking of all those (laughs) sci-fi ones. But then if you add in the inarguable defense of her role on Game of Thrones. I mean, it pretty much puts her over the top anyway. She obviously became this iconic character in a show that's now finishing up its seventh season, about to enter its eighth and last Game of Thrones. She was Cersei Lannister, who survived all the various uh, ins and outs of the politics of the Game of Thrones and has really been, even as the uh, adults are supplanted by their children, she still remains just this powerful force in that world as well and i think the show is so popular and her character has become so iconic and and i'm perfectly serious when i say this i can see her first name being turned into a verb yeah cersei or lena (laughs) no cersei yeah yeah no doubt (laughs) he cerseed her (laughs) exactly which could mean any of a number of things i guess but (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, the second on my list is the one that Wayne and I have had many, many arguments. I know you've been part of some of them as well. (laughs) And that's Amanda Tapping, who for me, my experience with Stargate SG-1 and her character of Samantha Carter was pretty much my first experience. And that character who was certainly an Air Force officer but she was also a scientist. So she, she had that dual role where she was very comfortable in the field with a gun, hand to hand combat, but she was also the brains of the outfit. You know, I mean, it's still unusual to be quite honest for, for that kind of a female character. I mean, we certainly have some, but I think she was certainly one of the first. Oh yeah. And, and so that alone could make her iconic, but Amanda Tapping has the added advantage of having much breadth, even more so than what you brought up with Gillian Anderson. Right. I mean, she was in Stargate Atlantis, which obviously was a an offshoot of uh, SG-1. But she also played Dr. Helen Magnus in Sanctuary, which was one of those shows that I, I just kind of discovered it almost accidentally. And I almost didn't recognize her because she's blonde in, in Stargate SG-1. And here she's got really dark hair. And a British accent. And a British <laughs> accent. But it, it's just a wonderful show. Uh, of course, she's been in Supernatural. And now as a director, which I guess technically isn't really what we're talking about here. We're talking about actresses, but we'll throw it out there anyway, because she's becoming an A-list director for genre TV, Dark Matter, Continuum, Van Helsing, Travelers, Primeval New World. So, you know, she she's certainly out there. And I think our fear is that her acting will start to go by the wayside as she gets involved more and more directing 
which is a shame, but I understand. I think it's already happened. (laughs) But, you know, she could do some cameos and guest appearances. But, yeah, I think she's right on the edge of becoming iconic just from the historical perspective and the fact that she's still working in genre television doesn't matter if it's, if it's just directing, but you can see the source of the argument that we have with Wayne sometimes <laughs> about that particular choice. Now I'm also going to bring up another controversial one. And in fact, I was a little hesitant to put her on the list. Cause I thought, am I just doing this because she's in the show I'm talking about, or she was in the show that I was talking about the last ship. And that's Deachin Lachman, who I fell in love with when she was on dollhouse as Sierra. I mean, she was just, just got such a unique look to her for one thing, not to mention her acting skills. And then when I checked her IMDB out, I saw her on agents of shield, but I didn't see her on being human. I was very surprised that to see that she was on that show, the American version, I believe. And then the last ship, like I said, she was the helicopter pilot in season three and she's going to be, in Altered Carbon, one of the highly anticipated cyberpunk TV adaptations that's coming in 2018. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Cool. So I'm very excited to, that she's going to be on that. And if she even had some guest spots on uh, shows like Torchwood and The Guild. So Deachin Lachman is definitely a breadth candidate for her career in sci-fi television. And I'm very happy that she showed up when I was doing my binge watch of The Last Ship. And let's not forget her role on The Hundred as Anya. Oh, I skipped over that one. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, that's a role, the leader of Tree Crew, that was filled by Lexa. And that was such an iconic role for that actress. And yet, I still remember how strong a performance she gave as the original leader of of that crew in The Hundred. So yeah, thank you for reminding me about that one. Okay. All right. And my third addition to this list is Trisha Helfer from Battlestar Galactica, first and probably foremost. I mean, is there a more iconic image than Six in that red dress? Oh, totally. That alone (laughs) earns her that spot. And then once we get to the end of the series, and gosh, we could do a whole podcast about the ending (laughs) of Battlestar Galactica, but her importance to the series as a whole, and the fact that she certainly played so many different aspects of the same character probably not to the extent that tatiana maslani played on orphan black but but certainly a a lot of different roles we'll just leave it at that (laughs) Uh, she also appeared in ascension the tv miniseries which i think you and i both agreed it wasn't great but it was pretty good yeah and i enjoyed seeing her back on my tv screen right but currently she appears on fox's lucifer which is a show I love, and fortunately, I'm going to get to review it for Den of Geek this season. She plays Lucifer's mother, who also happens to be married to God. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, She's just a wonderful character. You know, when we see her and she she comes to Earth and she's trying to gain her footing, and it's just Trisha Helfer in a different light than we've seen her in other roles. Oh, just a wonderful character. And I mean, certainly not anywhere near as iconic as her role in Battlestar Galactica, but still, uh, it's an important show. Lucifer's been doing great in the ratings. And uh, to be honest, and, and it's not surprising, but they got a big viewer bump when she joined the cast last season. So no surprise, no surprise at all. In fact, and of course, she's a series regular now. And 
you almost wonder what they did without her before she got on the show. Yeah, I think she's iconic for six and starting to build that breadth as well, like some of our other examples. But one that slips under the radar, perhaps, just like Deach and Lachman does, is Lexa Doig, who I have to get on this list. And some people may say, well, you know, she's in the arrangement now. She's not doing genre work anymore. But no, you know, I think, first of all, I do think she will return to genre shows just because of where she lives in Vancouver. But also, if you check out her IMDb, this girl's cred runs deep. She started out as cowgirl in tech war as a young lady. And then her iconic role, you might say, in Andromeda as the ship and as Rami and a couple of different incarnations of that character. But then, like many Canadian actors, she was in the 4400 and Stargate SG-1 was the beginning of what I call her run as the doctor character, this time as Dr. Carolyn Lamb was a great char- great addition to the later seasons of that show, right? Well, yeah, and it, we had the good fortune to interview her when we were doing our Continuum podcast. And I don't know if you remember that we asked her, what's with all the doctor roles? <laughs> yeah. And she said, I'm just really good at pronouncing these complicated words. Yeah, the jargon. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, she followed that up with her role on V as Dr. Leah Perlman. And then she was, I think even Sonia Valentine on Continuum was at least a medical in the medical profession. Uh, absolutely. Well, she was running the experiment from yeah. where, once they came. Yeah, that's right. The super soldier program. And she even played some bit parts as doctors in primeval new world, a couple episodes on that one. And Eureka, she played uh, a guest role. And most recently, right before, or maybe even during her time on the arrangement, she played Talia Al Ghul in several episodes of Arrow. So, you know, People know that Lexa Doig is near and dear to our heart, especially if they've been following our podcasts since we started podcasting with Continuum. But Lexa Doig slips under the radar, but she is one that pretty much anyone would tune into the show simply because she was in the cast. Well, for me, it borders on stalker status. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully you guys agree with our list and maybe you want to add some of your own as we've heard from a couple people since we've been starting this uh, Super 6 list idea that we've been doing our discussions with. So if you feel like adding to it, you can email us at sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com or, you know, hook up us with us on social media. We have that Facebook group as well as sci-fi fidelity on Twitter. So join the discussion there if you like, but it's time to get into our show discussions. And like I said, the first show that we're talking about, the Orville hasn't come out yet. It's, it's coming out this weekend as we're recording this September 10th, but We're going to just give you a little tease because, Dave, I don't know if you've noticed, but the press has not been kind and we're sort of of a different mind. Yes, we are. Well, the funny thing is you and I have not really talked about what we think about the Orville. And and I was curious to know what you think. And and you kind of just told me because. Well, (laughs) well, because the thing is, I'm going to be writing a spoiler free review of the premiere episode. And you know what I decided? I was about four or 500 words into it. And I said, you know what? I'm going to hold off on this, finishing it until Dave and I have had a chance to hash this out because I find myself leaning towards some of those same negative comments. So persuade me. (laughs) Uh, Well, number one, I really enjoyed it. I've seen it twice now. And both times I found myself laughing. I found myself, you know, enthralled in what was going on. I think and from the reviews I've read, and, and you know, we've talked about this before. I don't like to read too much before we record because I, I 
like to throw out my own thoughts and not just regurgitate something I read on the internet. So I wonder if the expectations are just unrealistic for what this show really is. And I think it's also fair and reasonable to say, well, maybe the show doesn't really know yet exactly what it is. You nailed it on both scores. Yeah, I think that's it. People have different ways of coming at this show, different expectations, and maybe they're not looking at it the right way, number one. And number two, the show has to grow. Yeah, I mean, look, I I think on the most literal level, you could say that it's Star Trek with a sense of humor because the homages to Star Trek are unmistakable. Yes. And some may say, and and I, I guess this is probably what some of the critics are saying, that it's just a blatant ripoff. It's not really funny. It's not really this. I mean, I'm not really sure. I really like what they're doing you know, because it's not a spoof on Star Trek by any stretch. Mm-mm. No, not at all. It's respectful of its inspiration. And yeah. in fact, I think that's because, and I don't know if you knew this, but Seth MacFarlane, the creator of the show and also the actor that's playing the captain, is a huge geek, a huge fan of Star Trek and has been wanting to do a project like this for quite some time. Yeah. And I did read that this is his first live action project. Oh, yeah. Family Guy, the American Dad. I mean, you can recognize his voice and it's almost <laughs> it almost puts you off because you're thinking that it's one of his characters in the animated series that he that he works on. <laughs> right. So, you know, his Captain Ed Mercer is at the center of the show. He is the captain of the I don't know if it's USS Orville. Or- it's like EVS. It's oh. got some weird uh, prefix. But yeah. <laughs> OK. <laughs> the Orville. And. For me, because I really didn't know who was in the show going into my first watch. And, okay, his ex-wife is, well, Bobby Morse. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Mockingbird. I was so excited because I didn't know that was coming. And I'm so glad I didn't know that ahead of time. (laughs) Uh, As well. So that's Adrian Palicki, who plays his ex-wife, who is now his (laughs) ex-O, Kelly Grayson. And, and look, she's just wonderful. And, and Seth MacFarlane for first live action, I thought he was really good. I thought his timing was great, you know, his comic timing. Penny Johnson Gerald, who a lot of people will know from Castle as the captain, plays the ship's doctor, Claire Finn. And then the rest of them are, are pretty much newbies, except for, and, and how can you complain when you get Victor Garber? Yeah, exactly. As the Admiral. Right. Who we know from Flash and and Alias. But uh, Scott Grimes as Gordon Malloy, uh, Peter Macon as Bordas, Halston Sage as Alara Catan, who who might be my favorite character outside of. uh, That's so funny. Yeah. Seth MacFarlane. Well, she's my favorite alien. I'm going to put it that way. But (laughs) I I just like her attitude. Uh, Jay Lee, who plays John Lamar. Already the chemistry between Jay Lee's character and Scott Grimes' character (laughs) is just priceless. I I can – so those are the the principles from the first episode. So one of the first things that strikes you about the show and its homage to Star Trek is, of course, the music. Yes. I mean, the special effects are pretty good. Are they at the level of, say, Dark Matter, Killjoys? I mean, maybe – well, now keep in mind, we saw a screener copy and it says there in big letters, 
VFX in progress. <laughs> so uh, I missed that part. We might not be seeing the finished product. <laughs> okay. But I think one of the things that I like is, I mean, it's like revisiting an old friend, but with a new twist. So that said, it's certainly not the original Star Trek. No. You know, when, you know, you mentioned your favorite alien. I thought the alien makeup was really good. Yeah, well, I think that was a strength. I think the robot character needed a little bit of work in his costume. But yeah, the alien makeup, I mean, it's typical Star Trek. You put some ridges on their nose and things like that. But it was, it was very well done. And I think that you put it very well when you said it's like an old friend. It's very comfortable, but they put a twist on it to make it seem more modern, which is kind of ironic when you consider it's futuristic. And yet it makes it feel like it's in our own time with the way they aren't perfect military heroes here. They're flawed characters who are not necessarily the cream of the crop of the union military. Right. And, and, you know, when the one, I think it's Jay Lee's character, uh, you know, the, the old captain let me have soda on the bridge. I love that scene. (laughs) And he's like, well, as long as you, you know, keep it below the console (laughs) and don't spill it. Yeah, that's fine. And then, and then when he, when the other guy pulls that one maneuver, uh, all right. Well, since I pulled that off, can I wear shorts now on the bridge? <laughs> yeah, it's just, and you know what this is? Uh, these are, you know, very subtle examples of the interaction between the characters. But for me, it basically makes it seem more like an office comedy rather than a space drama. So, you know, think the office, think parks and recreation, that type of show, it points it in that direction so that the comedy has a feel of casualness. Right. But, and I agree with that. And, and I think that's one of its early strengths, but that's not going to be enough, you know, snappy no. dialogue and all of that great characters. They're all likable right from the start. That's not going to be enough if you don't have a good story. And what I like about this first episode is that they don't spend the entire time on exposition, introducing us to this guy and that guy and this girl, right? There is a story and it is a science fiction story because it puts the Orville and its crew in jeopardy and it forces them to come up with a solution that really requires some outside of the box thinking. Yes. And and I think the beginning, middle and end of the science fiction story are good, well-constructed. It's the in-betweens for me that need work because I think what's happening here is that because we recognize things, we recognize things like, the color-coded uniforms for command versus science versus security, you know, the blue, red, and green in this case. But it glosses over some details and just assumes that the audience knows the kind of plot that they're seeing. And so I think the the holes get kind of just waved away and they say, oh, you know, you know this, this, this is a holodeck. I mean, they even have a holodeck at one point when, when they're introducing Lieutenant Malloy you know, things like that, where you just are supposed to recognize the Star Trek trope. Well, of course. You, well, should, you shouldn't be watching this shit. No, I'm kidding. You know, but, but yeah, sometimes I mean, it's good and sometimes it's fun, but sometimes it also is used to cover plot holes, I think. Yeah. And it gives my wife a chance to say, well, what's that? <laughs> well, 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 what's that? Good to know she's watching it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, is it too much of a spoiler to say time travel? Uh, well, it's not even a spoiler for me. I don't even know which part you're talking about. Well, I mean, the, 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 device. Oh, the device. The device. Okay. 
Yeah. Well, that's a hint. Let's just leave it out there. Yeah, we'll, we'll leave it as a hint. But uh, so, you know, obviously one, one of the most intriguing aspects uh, of this first episode from a personal standpoint, relationship standpoint, is the fact that this is the woman who he caught in bed with somebody and, and led to the divorce and, you know, being his ex-wife. And now she's his XO. And how is this all going to work out? And again, I think the way they handled it was, was really a lot of fun. And, and, and I, that's the part I actually was a little worried about. And that's where I stopped in my review. So I'm, I'm hoping you can maybe help me see the light because to me, it felt very contrived and over the top with not a whole lot of meat behind it. She didn't, like the fact that he wasn't around very much and that's why she she sought comfort in the arms of another man or an alien man as the case may be. Well, right. And that's clearly no excuse. And he held a grudge for a year. And the fact that like the crew, I think his friend actually calls her like a big bitch. It reminds me of the way Hunter called Bobby a bitch before she showed up on agents of shield. Totally undeserved. You know, I mean, yeah, she cheated. No, no question. But does that, speak to her character and her personality? No. She's obviously very noble to have tried to make amends here. Well, right. And there is a twist when we get to the end of the- I almost gave it away. (laughs) When we get to the end of the episode, when she meets with the Admiral once again, and we really learn more of the background of how this all came to be. Right. And and that is a good, nice little ending, Right, Uh, especially for a pilot. You need something like that. Right. So, I mean, I think you have to- consider whether or not too much of science fiction takes itself just too seriously. I mean, look, obviously much of it deals with serious issues. We get that. But the Orville wanting to take a lighter approach to telling space fiction tales. And when we look at this first story that we're presented, I mean, at the heart of it, how is that story really any different than a lot of those told on Star Trek or any of its iterations? Right. And we saw those favorably. It's just because they throw in a few corny jokes, too. And some of the jokes do fall flat, but not the Arbor Day joke, but some of them hit hit home. Which one? The Arbor Day. (laughs) The Arbor Day joke. Stay tuned, folks. It's in the notes, but for the Arbor Day joke. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. So, yeah, I think you've convinced me. and, And I do want to put my written review in a very positive light while still pointing out some of its failings. But yeah, I definitely do not want to jump on the bandwagon of panning this show because it's something unique and people need to realize that at least it's not something that's just another derivative of The Walking Dead or something like that. So good stuff. All right. Well, we're going on to our second show topic, which is The Last Ship. And like I said before, I'll start out with a little bit of talking about why I binge watched this show and why I really enjoyed doing that. Maybe you can decide if you want to. And then we'll get into the more spoilery stuff, especially since season four started on August 20th and we're already four episodes in to the fourth season. So uh, I'll warn you before we get into that stuff. But this is a really cool show and, and much different than I expected. I guess when I went into my binge watch, I thought The Last Ship was a show about a ship wandering through the world, encountering infected people, a worldwide epidemic. And then it stayed that way for four seasons. And it was like, like I said, The Walking Dead, just another version of that where they were encountering different warlords and stuff. But it turns out. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That's just season one. <laughs> Yeah, and I think what turned me off because I I did not watch it until you know prepping for this podcast, the whole idea of a global viral pandemic. I'm like, uh, that okay. has been done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, it's okay. It's science fiction, but it's not really what I'm interested in. Right, and I think what sets it apart because you're right. That part is not necessarily what makes it unique. What makes it unique is it takes place on this ship, a Navy ship called the USS Nathan James, got a crew of 218 people. They were off in the Arctic when the virus hit, and so it's already ravaged the world for months before they get going on it. And they have this very militaristic structure, very realistic military structure on this ship. And that's what really sets it apart because some of the adventure scenes, the ship to ship battles, and even the person to person combat are military in its, in their execution and, and using all the jargon. And those are some of the most exciting scenes that there are. And I always look forward to the episodes that have that in it where the ship has to MacGyver its way out of a fix. In fact, I think you saw an episode in season four, episode two, had one of those where the power goes out on the ship and they have to <laughs> figure out how to string a bunch of batteries together. <laughs> right. And I mean, it happens when they're in the field as well. And just before we go any, any further, I- I'm just really surprised how much I really like this show. Yeah, I was surprised too. I thought I was going to have to slog through it and I was eager to keep going. Now they're, they're not all as good as season one. I mean, season one and two, I think by far the best. The season one, if you just want to put like a a summary on each one so you can decide, like I said, and then we'll go into the spoilery stuff. Season one, they're trying to find a cure for this plague that has infected the world. There seems to be some human intervention in it, such that it was a targeted virus. They get attacked by various warlords. The Russians are involved because there's a Russian uh, ship captain that also has kept his people free. But for the most part, they have to keep from being infected, too. But then in season two, they're already moving on to administering a cure for the virus around the world. And the problem is there are people who are naturally immune and they are battling the Nathan James. So in a sense, season one has the Russians as the main villain. Season two has these immunes as the main villain. And then season three goes on to reestablishing America And it becomes a political show, the political intrigue of trying to unite the various factions in the fractured United States and where Chandler has now become chief of naval operations and Slattery is now the captain of Nathan James. And all along the way, people are dying. This show does not care if you are a main character. They will kill you. (laughs) Yes. And, And just to get back to season two for a second and with the immunes, what I find so intriguing is the idea that you know some of these people see themselves almost in a religious context that they are the chosen ones and that that changes 
you know, how things are transpiring. So you got this group of people that feel as if they're the ones that deserve to live. No one else does. All right. I keep thinking, I wonder if that's going to come back up again, because in season three, it's pointed out at one point that the president of the United States is an immune who has been converted to the cause of curing the less fortunate. (laughs) So yeah, it's, it's a different dynamic than season two. And and then season three, I was a little worried. I started watching it and I'm going, okay, they're doing a lot with different relationships. In fact, one uh, character in particular, Lieutenant Burke, had just gotten off a relationship plot in season two. And at the beginning of season three, he's already making eyes at some new girl. And I'm like, is this show going to become a bunch of relationship drama? But then Bridget Regan and Deach and Lockman showed up <laughs> and all was forgiven. And Bridget Regan, who joined the cast as Sasha Cooper in season three and is now a very prominent character in season four and seeing Deach and Lockman in any show is great. In fact, I wish her character had continued in season four. She's still alive, but she's uh, part of the plot that took place in China. And that's the other thing I like about the last ship. It's global. They don't just stick to America. They have the Russians. They they go to the Caribbean. They talk about Europe being completely destroyed. And season three takes place almost entirely in China. So I like that aspect of the show as well. Right, because what we find out early on is that 80% of the world's population has been wiped out. Right. But there's still plenty of people trying to rebuild society. It becomes a post-apocalyptic story that's more about the political intrigue than it is about a typical science fiction post-apocalypse. And so it is a true hybrid in that sense. Right. And that's one of the things that will come out in our discussion of season four in a few minutes is that you have to throw away what it is you think you know about world governments, world military organizations, because nothing is as it has been. And Anybody can be an enemy. (laughs) Exactly. All right. So season four. Well, before we get to season four, I'll just throw it out there. Decide for yourself if you want to watch Last Ship based on that, but go no further if you need to avoid spoilers. Okay, go ahead, Dave. (laughs) All right, so season four picks up 16 months after the end of season three. And one of the big plot points at the end of season three is the captain of the ship, Tom Chandler, walks away. Yeah, and this is why you actually said to me, you sent to me a Facebook message that said, is this 24 on a ship? (laughs) Because he is very much like Jack Bauer in that sense where he disappears and then they pull him back in. Well, I love, they don't necessarily pull him back in. It's, it's, well, we'll get to that. It's all circumstantial. Yeah, it's great. Exactly. The only problem I have with season four is there is a, a weirdness for me for the premise because I loved the fact that they teased the idea that the virus might've mutated in season three and you know the doctor that researched the cure in the in the initial seasons said it could not mutate and i wanted that to be a hard and fast rule and luckily it did end up being a hard and fast rule in season 3 but in season 4 now it has moved on to crops so now we have the red rust which okay you've cured all the humans but you're not done with this virus yet now it's decimating the world's food supply and i'm not so sure i like the <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm being nitpicky of, with the science of it because obviously it's science fiction. But that was a bit of a leap for me. But once you buy into that, I guess, you know, you, you can move forward from there. <laughs> well, and that's exactly what happened to me. But I think in retrospect, if we then go back to 
the fact that this is actually being engineered by a human. Oh yeah. Well, so there might be more to it than what we've seen so far. Right. But now we're dealing with worldwide famine. Yeah. Slattery is now in charge of the Nathan James. And, And before I go again, any further on this, I'm shocked how much I love Adam Baldwin yeah. in this role because all I knew him from was Firefly and then a few episodes on Castle playing with Nathan Fillion, his captain in Firefly, where he basically played Jane in his <laughs> Castle role. But he's totally different. He's totally awesome. He really is. And yeah, I wasn't expecting that either. And a lot of the actors are just top notch in this show. And I really enjoy seeing the actor who plays Tom Chandler, definitely, but also the new dynamics between him and Bridget Regan's character, Sasha, which it's really taken an interesting turn because they're being very subtle with the romantic feelings that the two of them have. I mean, they did kiss in season three, but it really hasn't gone anywhere beyond that. And there's a little bit of tension on that score. But before they even get reunited, you think, how are these two plot lines going to get together because here's Chandler living in a Greek fishing village with his kids. He's decided because of what happened at the end of season three, that he's going to go back to what matters with his kids. And he looks like he's even got a new girlfriend. He looks very happy except for the fact that this thug named Giorgio who runs the seas and, and appears later to not just be a local thug, but running the entire Mediterranean sea is extorting food from fishermen and and fish have not been affected by the, by the virus. So, you know, this is their livelihood and they take their cut and you know that Chandler's only going to be able to take that so long, except the path that he takes is an interesting one because he realizes he doesn't have much choice, but that he's just biding his time and waiting for an opportunity to either make a break for it himself or bring this guy down because he will not, abide it yeah and and that to me was a little bit problematic because of his military training because the odds are not in his favor not at all and you know sometimes you just have to walk away from a fight but this is tom chandler we're talking about (laughs) which is i think what you were alluding to and he mentions though during the course uh, of the episode that he was confused by revenge as opposed to justice and, and that that confusion is what caused him to walk away from the Nathan James. And, you know, again, that, that's sort of at play here. Certainly we know what the just thing would be to do, but you know, there is that revenge factor. Well, yeah. And, and that is a climactic moment at the end of season three that involves the death of a major character. So I don't necessarily want to get too detailed in case you feel like going back at some point, but it it makes sense for his character. And I, I think what's interesting, you mentioned, you know, he's Tom Chandler. He's going to do this. One of the things that also that I like about this show, as I watched the various seasons, is how much we talked about the Orville being a tribute to Star Trek. This guy is Captain Kirk. He goes on all the away missions. You know, it, the captain should be putting his life on the line like this. And over the course of the three and a half seasons now, he's become this hero across the world. He's known as the guy who brought the cure to the world. So I guess he grows a little beard and looks a little bit more like the Greek hero Hercules, which <laughs> comes into play later. But by, and by the way, why do every single member of the Nathan James 
now have this really scruffy looking awful beard. I hope they shave them off. I mean, I don't know if you know any of the characters from before, Dave, but these beards need to go. Well, I would say because they can, but you know, (laughs) I can and I don't want one. And I think what they're doing is because this season is taking place in the Mediterranean, we're not only dealing with the Greeks, we're also dealing with the Arab countries. And in fact, that's what the Nathan James is up to, trying to track down this one seed, this one plant, the ancient palm oil plant, Elias virilis, which might be able to be studied in order to cure the crops of the red rust, because this one plant is immune, except this guy named Omar has stolen the seeds from the World Seed Bank. And they have a very close opportunity in the, in the premiere episode of season four, where they almost get it from someone who stole it. But Omar becomes the big force in the Arab part of the world to try and make a profit off of the sale of this thing that could save the world. But I was very interested to see that in the most recent episode, Omar seems to have been taken out of the picture, except at the last minute, his eyes open and you wonder what's going to happen between Giorgio, the force from the Greek side of things and Omar from the Arab side of things. And then Nathan James in between the two. So it's almost like a three front war, which makes things very interesting. Well, right. And at the center of season four to this point are the magic beans or, (laughs) you know, the uh, world seed bank seeds. And, And it's nice that we have that tangible object where we actually see the cylinder, we see the, the seeds in it. But I wonder because season four is only 10 episodes. Season one was 10. Seasons two and three were 13 each. So now we're back to 10. So we're, we're approaching the halfway mark. I can see the seeds being the focal point all the way through to the end. Do you think? Oh, yeah, I think so. Especially since they're going to have to study them again, the same way that the virus was studied in humans and in monkeys in season one. And in that sense, I do feel like it's a bit of a repeat in terms of the central tension that's there. But I really like the fact that it took them most of the first half of the season to get Chandler reunited with the Nathan James. And then he immediately tries to get back into captain mode and they're not having it. I love it. Like Bridget Regan's character, Sasha Cooper is like, Tom, I got this. <laughs> right. And, and some of the looks she gives him without saying it was, it was just really, really great. So, so I mean, through the first four episodes, it's, it's almost like chasing the seeds. Yeah. Uh, well, we think they're going to go here, so let's go there. And, and we've got to, you know, park the ship here. And look, any show, no matter how good, is going to have a few little things that we're going to nitpick over. And, and I mean, for me, when they feel as if the seeds are headed towards Iran – the Nathan James hits a fishing net armed with an IED <laughs> yeah. that knocks out all of its systems. Yeah. And I'm thinking, really? <laughs> yeah, that was a bit contrived. Yet, that being said, that was one of my favorite episodes of the season so far because of the, like I said earlier, the MacGyver aspect of them having to string a bunch of batteries together, figure out a way to shoot down the missiles that were coming at them. Plus, the team on the land was trying to track down a mobile missile station. And I love it when they get into uh, military mode and ship-to-ship battles and things like that. Even though the plot doesn't move much farther forward on, in episodes like that. And in fact, they have a bunch of different 
episode types that they can go with that have been established over the first three seasons. And uh, I think that's just one of the strengths of the show. The fact that they can have a ship to ship battle episode followed by a more intriguing spy or political intrigue episode. So I've really enjoyed that about the show and it looks like it's continuing in season four. And of course the way that Chandler hooks up with the Nathan James is a lot of fun as he becomes a fighter in this basically fight club that Giorgio has set up. He's, he's a real aficionado of bare knuckle fights to the death and Chandler gets wrapped up in it. And at the same time that Omar shows up to make the trade with Giorgio for the seeds, there's Chandler and Nathan James in the same location. Now here's the thing that I get a little confused in because Peter Weller shows up. Now Peter Weller has directed several episodes already of the last ship. And now he's showing up as a character and might even be called one of the third main villains. If you count Omar and Giorgio as the other two. And yet, don't they appear to be studying or wanting to study the seeds in a scientific manner that might actually be helpful to the world? Well, yes, but at what price? I mean, I believe that their science is going to come with a price tag and it's going to be a pretty hefty one. Because the last ship is not shy about turning its villains into heroes because the members of the Nathan James give them a chance where no one else would. So I'm wondering what's going to happen there. But Peter Weller, what a great character to show up in this season, you know, still with his RoboCop voice and everything like that. So really looking forward to seeing where him and it turns out his family, Giorgio and Lucia, are his son and daughter. And in fact, the one that just showed up that's a favorite of ours, favorite actor of ours, is also Drew Roy, the second son of Peter Weller's character, is from falling skies, another TNT show. And now here he is on the last ship. That was a pleasant surprise. Right. And, you know, as you mentioned a a few minutes ago, what is his plan? Should he get his hands on the seeds? Yeah, exactly. Is he actually working? Cause you know, Chandler found a little notebook when he was snooping around that had a lot of mentions of formulas and genetic codes and stuff about this palm oil seed. So perhaps they're also trying to seek a cure as well. But you you never know. It could turn and suddenly become a super soldier program or something like that. Well, and and that was in uh, Giorgio's desk, right? Yeah, yeah. So are are we to believe those are Giorgio's notes that he has that kind of a scientific background? It's hard to tell who's the scientist. Maybe more than one of them is. But yeah, is it Peter Weller? Is it Giorgio? Is it Lucia? Is it Drew Roy's character? So yeah, there's still more to be seen from season four, but it's off to a great start. But I just really wanted to point out that the foundation of this show is very strong. Seasons one and two especially are very good and worth a rewatch. The last ship showed up in our episode when we talked about shows we missed. And I'm very glad to say that's no longer the case. Yeah, I'm, I'm, hey, I'm in for the long haul. (laughs) Yep, going to enjoy the rest of it. So Uh, Some interesting shows and some interesting parallels uh, across our various discussions there. But our interview segment is an entity unto itself. (laughs) The horror anthology series Channel Zero. And we got to speak with Nick Antosca about the new season, which is completely self-contained. And I got to talk to Nick Antosca pretty much every week during season one when he was doing uh, Candle Cove and really got a chance to see what his vision is. But this interview really 
shed some light on how this show works, especially with the creepypasta inspiration. So Nick Costa, the showrunner, is the common thread tying these seasons together, bringing new ways to scare people to the screen and sharing his vision with indie directors, which you'll find out about in this uh, interview, who direct all six episodes of each season. This season's Channel Zero is called No End House, and Nick Antosca was gracious enough to break it down for us in advance of its September 20th premiere. So take a listen to the interview we had with him last week. We're here with Nick Antosca, showrunner, executive producer of Channel Zero on Sci-Fi. And we're really happy to have you with us here to talk about this great anthology series. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now, to start off with, I guess we should uh, remind everyone what a creepypasta is, because your anthology series is specifically going after these internet folklore-type stories, correct? Yes. Um, the show is based on creepypasta. Every season is based on a new one is entirely standalone, but there are continuing themes and ideas across the seasons as with creepypastas. All right. And of course, anthology series in some cases has come to be episodically different, such as black mirror or inside number nine or something like that. But this is more along the lines of American Horror Story, where the entire season is self-contained. So can you tell us a little bit about the uh, No End House that this particular season is based on? Yeah, No End House is based on Brian Russell's Creepypasta, which is one of the most popular ones. There's fan fiction, sequels, people made uh, fan-made video games based on it. And ever since we got the show ordered, No End House was at the top of my list for stories to adapt. Um, it has everything that we look for in uh, Creepypasta. It has a great horror concept. It has an open-ended world, a suggestion of a greater mythology. So we reached out to, to Brian Russell and told him what we had in mind. And fortunately, he was excited about it. And so uh, it became something really interesting and uh, terrifying, I think. Yeah, so the general concept, of course, is that this no-end house has a series of rooms that you have to survive in order to win the prize, supposedly, in the creepypasta. I'm not sure if that's what you're going for in the show, but there is no end to this house. There's going to be a lot of questioning of reality and psychological thrillers. Now, if I've read Brian Russell's creepypasta tale, have I just spoiled everything for myself or will I enjoy seeing some of the familiar elements from the story? No, you haven't spoiled it because, um, because we, we get through the concept of the story mostly in the first episode. You know, there's a series of rooms, each one is scarier than the last. You finally get out of the house and go home and think that you're free and then you start to wonder if what you perceive to be reality is, in fact, still the last room of the house. Um, and that was the, the twist that most attracted me to the original story um, and that opened up the possibilities for an entire season. So uh, if you read the story, that's basically the point that you get to. And also we created new characters for the show. So... I think even people who love and are very familiar with the story will get a totally fresh experience out of the Channel Zero version of Dylan House. Now, in season one, we enjoyed seeing actors like Paul Schneider of Parks and Recreation and Fiona Shaw of True Blood. 
Can you tell us a little bit about who we can expect to see in season two? Cause a, a few of these I'm very excited about. <laughs> yeah. So, um, the best known name is John Carroll Lynch, who played, of course, Twisty the Clown on American Horror Story, uh, who's the Zodiac killer in David Venture's Zodiac. He's at Fargo. Uh, he was in The Invitation. He's an amazing actor. And when we were casting this role, which is a really, really tough role to cast because he has to do so many different things, John, just at the top of our list, Stephen Pyatt, uh, the director for the entire season, and I sat down and and went through like who could play this role. And there were not a lot of people who felt right for it. Um, so John was kind of our dream casting. And it was funny when I had to try and convince him to take a role. He's like, look, we're going to send you the pilot script, but you, know, you only appear at the very, very end. Um, and then <laughs> like, let me, let me talk you through the arc of the character over the season. So we had a really cool phone call and um, he signed on and he is such a pro and he had just come off of directing his first film, Lucky, starring uh, Harry Dean Stanton and David Lynch. And so he was um, he was in a really cool, collaborative place and he was a great mentor, I think, to the rest of the cast who are much younger actors. Amy Forsyth obviously plays the lead, plays Margot. Aisha D, who is on The Bold Type now. Jeff Ward, who's going to be on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. coming up. We managed to put together a really exciting, really excellent cast. And um, I'm excited for people to see what they do. Yeah, and for those uh, listeners out there who watched Defiance, because I know there's a few in our audience, Amy Forsyth played Andina, yes. the tar handmaiden in that show. So <laughs> she was one of my favorites. Um, so speaking of this young adult cast, because we have a very recognizable horror setup in terms of all the teenagers being very confident in their ability to navigate the no-end house, feelings of invulnerability, do you find yourself going to those horror tropes a lot or do you try to avoid them and come up with new ways to scare people that they've never seen before? Well, every season has a, a different flavor and a different, there's a different kind of horror. Um, Candle Cove, I think, had a very specific Stephen King vibe. And it's about uh, a guy going back to his hometown, confronting a childhood evil. It's this very rural vibe. Season t- uh, uh, No End House is much more of a suburban John Carpenter vibe. And so we wanted to start with that that feeling of like, you know, teenagers doing something maybe unwise and things get turned around, but, but we wanted to go to a much richer psychological place than traditionally a movie like that might. Uh, So you'll see where it goes in future episodes, but yeah, we like to play with uh, familiar horror tropes and um, use them to our advantage. Yeah, I mean, people like the familiar along with the new as well. So, yeah, that's a good place to be. Now, is there anything, that being said, that is signature Nick and Tosco that would tie season one and two together in any way? Um, the, the sense of dread, I think, is consistent from season to season. And, uh, and both season one and season two, both Candle Cove and No End House, are about characters dealing with a personal tragedy and 
struggling with whether to move forward, to face the past, and and they deal with it in different ways, but both seasons deal with similar themes and use horror to explore those themes. Now, last time we spoke, season one was about to start, and you were already filming season two at that time, and now we're talking about No End House, but you're already filming season three. So what are the advantages of filming so far ahead, and, and why do it that way? Are there some advantages to that type of schedule? Um, the biggest advantage is more time in post-production. You know, this is, this is a show that we shoot. Um, we don't use like traditional TV shooting style. We block shoot the entire season. We shoot it like a movie and we spend more time in the editing room than most TV shows do necessarily. So having the time to craft a full season is the advantage. Okay, and this has a new director as well, Stephen Piat. What can you tell us about the vision or the unique style that he brings to this season? Stephen's amazing. Um, he did a, a very small indie film called Uncle John that I saw and tracked him down. And every season, we went to a showcase for a different indie director. And the first season, obviously, was Craig McNeil, Stephen did every episode of No End House and brought a very specific style and vision to it. And uh, I think he's, I think he's going to have an amazing career. Well, it's great. I can't wait to see that indie style brought to the show. I think that'll be a big advantage for it. And it's coming to sci-fi on September 20th and we're very much looking forward to it. So thank you very much, Nick and Tosca for talking to us today about channel zero. Thank you. All right. And I really liked learning that bit about the fact that he used indie directors to direct all six episodes because this season appears to be very similar to season one in that it has that indie film feel. And yet, like he said, the first season was Ray Stephen King and the second season is more, you know, John Carpenter. So I really uh, am looking forward to seeing what he does to scare the crap out of us <laughs> come September 20th. And you know, with Halloween just around the corner, <laughs> the timing couldn't be better. So check it out on sci-fi starting on September 20th. Lots of shows to look forward to. In fact, it's going to be tough to pick our topics in the next couple of months, but we'll give it our best shot. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. We hope you enjoyed our discussion. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in October, we're looking at possibly tackling a couple of new shows, Fox's The Gifted and Sci-Fi's Ghost Wars. So stay tuned to our social media for any changes to that lineup. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Plus, we take suggestions for future topics. Just let us know on social media what you'd like us to talk about. And, of course, we take contributions to our discussion. You can also email us at sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month.